This is tape number three of an eight-tape series called Journey to Recovery with Joe and Charlie, recorded in Laughlin, Nevada, August 1998. For additional copies of this series or a catalog of all our 12-step tapes, call Encore at 1-800-878-1308 or visit our website at www.12steptape.com. We could probably hardly wait to see what really did take place in Bill's life and how he recovered. And I don't think it's by accident the very next chapter is titled, There is a Solution. There is a solution to the, to the thing that Bill has really described in his own story here and to what Dr. Silkworth has talked to us about it. Now, if our problem is powerless, which we should be convinced of that by now, then obviously the answer is going to lie within power. And in this chapter, there is a solution. We're going to talk about two powers. We're going to talk about the power of the fellowship, and we're going to talk about the power of the vital spiritual experience. And if we who are powerless could get both of these powers in our lives, then maybe we could overcome alcoholism also. On page 17, for those who are powerless, he writes the prescription. Here he talks about the two powers. Abby presented Bill with a solution. And now Bill's going to present us with a solution in the same way. So there is a solution. As a friend of mine back home says, there's many different types of solutions as there are people in AA. And I say, if you look at the chapter heading on page 17, it'll tell you how many solutions there are. There is a solution. One. He said we, and there's that big word again. We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. Said we are average Americans. Today we can say that we're average citizens of the world because of my last count there was a AAs in 154 countries around the world. So all sections of this country and their occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are people who normally would not mix. And I think that we're probably the most mixed up group of alcoholics in the world here this morning, <laughs> here in Laughlin, Nevada. You know, if we didn't have alcoholics to talk, alcoholics anonymous to talk about or drinking and recovery therefrom, I wonder what we would drink about, talk about. There's hardly anything. <laughs> I told you I had a good memory, it's just short. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have anything to talk about. But we're, it says that we are people who normally would not mix. But there exists among us a fellowship and a friendliness which is indescribably wonderful. And I hear that this morning and before the meeting. All the talk and the laughter and the going on, that's the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got sober on the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous. That was the only thing keeping me here. So it's a powerful thing. The fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous kept me sober for quite some time. Now he's going to describe this fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous by talking about something he already assumes that we know about it, or he knows he thinks we already know about it. And all great teachers have always done this. When they wanted to teach you something new, they would talk to you first about something you already know and use that as an example to teach you something new. You know, we had a great teacher that lived 2,000 years ago, and he was really good at this. When he wanted to teach something to the shepherd, he, told, he would tell him a story about sheep. But if he wanted to teach the same thing to the fisherman, he would change his story. This time it would be about fish. Then when he went to the farmer, he talked about cattle and grains. All good teachers do this. Bill is going to use the example of the great passenger ship. He said, we are like the passengers of a great liner. 
the moment after rescue from shipwreck when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Uh, Bill is referring to a time in the 30s when your mode of transportation from one continent to another was by the great ocean liners. And on those great ocean liners, they had what they called the steerage section. And people who were immigrants that didn't have very much money, they usually booked passage in the steerage section, way down in the bowels of the ship, very little fresh air, dormitory-style living. I call it the cheese sandwich section, not very good down there. Now, if you had a little more money, though, and you wanted better accommodations, you could pay for fourth class and come up a deck or two. Then you could go third class and come up another deck or two. Then you could go second class and come up another deck or two, and each time the accommodations and the food were better. If you had enough money, you could go in what they call first class. In first class, they had big, fine staterooms. They had great dining rooms. They had good food, fine waiters, access to fresh air all the time. But that still wasn't the most elite place on the ship. If you had the right kind of money, old, old money, old money, if you had the right religion, the right ethnic background, the right everything, you might be invited to dine at the captain's table. Just a few select people could do that. And at the captain's table, you had the best of everything, the best service, the best food, the best everything. Now, it's a long, long ways from the captain's table to the steerage section. And in the journey across the ocean, those two people should never have met each other. In fact, most of those ocean liners even had separate stairwells. So the first-class people never even had to see those who rode in the steerage section. They had nothing whatsoever in common. Then I think about the Titanic and the night it hit the iceberg. And these two guys are standing there at the rail of the ship. And one of them got his tuxedo on his shiny shoes and his little bow tie and everything that goes with it. Standing next to him is the guy from the steerage section. Got his old work overalls on, his old brogans, never wore a tie in his life. These guys had nothing whatsoever in common with each other until they jumped overboard. And when they jumped overboard and their butts hit that cold water, they had something in common. How in the hell do we save ourselves? And they grabbed on to each other and held on to each other. And I doubt very seriously if the man from the captain's table asked for a financial statement from the man from the steerage section. And when these two guys were rescued and got back on another ship or back on land, there was a feeling amongst them which was indescribably wonderful. This has always been true. When people escape from a common peril, there is a feeling that ties them together, and it's one of the greatest feelings in the world, and that's what we got in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. We don't care who you are. We don't care where you came from. We don't care how much money you got. We don't care what your education is. We don't care what your ethnic background is, what your religion is, or anything else. All we want to know is, are you an alcoholic? And if you are, there is a feeling amongst us which is indescribably wonderful. Even though we are so different from each other, we are still bound together. Now watch it. He's going to give us a warning. Unlike the feeling of the ship's passengers, however, our joy and escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways. These two guys, when they finally got back on shore, they looked at each other, they said, well, we really don't belong together, and they separated, probably never to be the game. But we will always be alcoholic. 
And this feeling we have for each other never goes away, and we find it again in city after city after city and country after country. One of the greatest things I've been able to experience in my lifetime is to go to an AA meeting in a foreign country and feel just exactly as good as I did at home. Even though I don't know those people, we are bound together because we're alcoholics. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element of the powerful scene in which binds us. But that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. In other words, this feeling we have for each other in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is one of the things that bind us together. But then he said that itself is not enough. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism, not the news of the fellowship, but the news of the common solution. And later on we're going to see where the common solution is the spiritual experience brought about through the program of action. Now, if we could get the power of the fellowship which supports us and helps us, and if we could get the power of the spiritual experience which changes us and add the two together, then that will be enough power to overcome our powerlessness over alcohol and we can recover from that condition. I think one of the greatest tragedies that I see in the world today, and there's lots of tragedies going on in the world today, one of the greatest that I see is we people who are in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous are spending literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of men and women work hours trying to attract other alcoholics to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous when we've got thousands and thousands who are already members of Alcoholics Anonymous who are sitting around dying from untreated alcoholism because they're doing nothing about the common solution. And the reason they're doing nothing about the common solution is nobody's telling them about it. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody's saying, look, here's the program of action. Nobody's saying, let me take you by the hand and walk with you so you can have a spiritual experience. And they're fellowship only, and after a while they go back to drinking. And they said, well, AA don't work for us. No, they didn't work for AA. They didn't do the program. And again, it's not their fault. It's our fault because we're not insisting that new people work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and we're letting them die around us. Thousands of us are dying every day who are already members of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I think it's our responsibility to see that every newcomer knows about page 17 and knows there's two powers, the power of the fellowship and the power of the spiritual experience. And we're not going to recover without both of them. Now, we might stay sober for a while, but we're not going to recover from alcoholism without both of them. No more preaching today. <laughs> Guarantee you that. Preached a little last night, preached just a little bit this morning. We'll try not to preach anymore. <laughs> a good textbook never tells you anything but what it doesn't back it up and prove it. The first half of this chapter is designed to show you and I why fellowship alone is not sufficient. The last half of this chapter is used to show us the solution to alcoholism, the vital spiritual experience. Let's look for just a few minutes at why fellowship alone is not sufficient, and then we'll take a break. Let's go to page 20. He said, you may already have asked yourself why it is so all of us became so very ill from drinking. 
doubtless you are curious to discover how and why in the face of expert opinion to the contrary we have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body now, if you're an alcoholic who wants to get over it you may already be asking well what do i have to do it's the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically remember last night we talked about precisely specifically with clear-cut directions well here's one of those words we shall tell you what we've done before going into detailed discussion, may be well to summarize some points as we see them. Now, how many times people have said to us, I can take it or leave him alone, why can't he? Why don't you drink like a gentleman quit? That fellow can't handle his liquor. Why don't you try a beer and wine and lay off the hard stuff? His willpower must be weak. He could stop if he wanted to. She's such a sweet girl. I should think he'd stop for her sake. The doctor told him that if he ever drank again, it would kill him. But there he is, all lit up again. Now, these are commonplace observational drinkers which we hear all the time. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. We see that these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different from ours. Now, we're going to look at two kinds of drinkers that these expressions that Joe just read would refer to them. So modern drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. Remember we talked about them last night? They have a couple of drinks. They get a slightly tipsy, out-of-control beginnings of a nauseous feeling. Alcohol is no big deal for them. If they have any problems with it, they simply leave it alone. Those expressions that Joe read would certainly refer to the moderate drinker. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have a habit bad enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. And it may even cause him to die a few years before his time. Now, if... A sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warnings of a doctor becomes operative, if they do, this man can stop all or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need a little medical attention. Now we call this guy the heavy or the hard drinker. They drink like we alcoholics drink, but they are not alcoholic. If a good enough reason presents itself to them, they'll do one of two things. They may learn to moderate their drinking. They do not have the physical allergy. They may quit drinking entirely and stay quit. They do not have the obsession of the mind. They drink like us, but they're not alcoholic, and you and I see them all the time. They're the guy that said, when I was in the service, I was an alcoholic also. So when I got out of the service, I got married, went to church, quit drinking, don't see why in the hell you can't. No, they're not alcoholic. The expressions that Joe read in the beginning would refer to the heavy drinker. But what about the real alcoholic? Now, he may start off as a moderate drinker, which many of us did. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. Some of us stayed periodic. But at some stage of his drinking career, begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. Now then, we're going to describe the real alcoholic. And when you see a description in there that fits you, would you please raise your hand? We'd like to see if we're in a room full of real alcoholics. He said, but at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. Mm -hmm. Charlie talked last night about... He talked last night about crossing over that line. He talked last night about crossing over that line. But I don't know what line he was talking about, but I know one thing. I was drunk when I went over it. <laughs> okay, now here's the fellow who's been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He's a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He's seldom mildly intoxicated. He's always more or less insanely drunk. Anybody like that in here? Yeah, betcha. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but little. I always get good looking and out of debt as soon as I start drinking. Like 
He may be one of the finest fellows in the world, yet he can drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. Have we got any of those people in here? He has a positive genius for getting tied at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement. People yet. like that in here always getting drunk at the wrong time. Now, everybody holds their hand up on this one. He's often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor, <laughs> but in that respect, he's incredibly dishonest and selfish. He often speci possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitudes, and has a promising career ahead of him. Anybody like that in here? I've never heard anybody but an alcoholic say that, though. I, I've never heard an Alamon say it yet. <laughs> He uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself. Then he pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series of sprees. Anybody like that in here? He's, yeah. a, he's a fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he ought to sleep the clock around. Yet early the next morning he searches madly for the bottle he misplaced the night before. Any bottle hiders in here? Yeah. If he can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all over his house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him to throw down the waste pipe. Anybody... Spread them around wherever you might be. Phyllis and I used to buy a lug of whiskey, which is three-fifths, and one to share and one to hide from each other. <laughs> As matters grow worse, he begins to use a combination of high-powered sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. Anybody ever have to have a little something in the morning? Then comes a day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. Perhaps he goes to a doctor who gives him morphine or some sedative to wish to taper off. Then he begins to appear at hospitals and treatments, or excuse me, sanitariums. Yeah. Never did taper off. I always tapered on for some reason. I don't know. Uh, this is by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic, as her behavior patterns vary, but this description should identify him roughly. You know, if our government has ever done anything right in the field of alcoholism, it's an education of the public as to what alcoholism is and what it isn't. Because of that, a lot of the stigma has been removed from alcoholism. Many, many people are getting us today before they have to do everything here that describes the real alcoholic. But I'll guarantee you, if you're a real alcoholic, you found yourself in there somewhere. At least one of them are going to fit you. In my case, practically every one of them. One in particular. Seven years after I got sober, I sold a 40-acre, 45,000 broiler chicken operation. For years after that, Every once in a while, I would run into the guy that bought it, and sometimes he would wave and smile and say, Hey, Charlie, we have found another one. And he's referring to partially empty vodka bottles. Yeah. Behind corner posts, under rocks, hollow trees, falling out of feet bins. Hell, he found them for years in there. Now, here's the question. Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle with all his attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it that he takes that one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? The moderate drinker can. The heavy drinker can. Why can't the alcoholic? What has become of the common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? Perhaps there never will be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. We're not sure why once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We cannot answer the riddle. We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, 
something happens both in the bodily and mental sense which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. Now these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. Would you read that again, please? Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. Now we must remember that always, just before we take the first drink, we are stone cold sober. Or stark raving sober. Or stark raving sober, one of the two. <laughs> and the real problem centers in our mind telling us we can drink while sober rather than in the body that ensures that we can't drink. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he'll offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. They sound like the philosophy of the man who's having a headache beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. And once in a while, he may tell the truth. And as strange as it may seem, there are times we alcoholics tell the truth, not very often, but once in a great while. I had a lady who was in Al-Anon came to me one time, and her husband was still drinking, and she said, Charlie, all he does is lie, lie, lie. She said, how can you tell when one of you guys are lying? And I said, lady, watch him closely. And if you see his lips moving, he's probably lying to you all right. You know? <laughs> and then I said, do you want me to tell you how to keep him from lying? She said, yeah, yeah. And I said, don't ask him those stupid questions. He has no more idea than you do. Now, here's the truth. And the truth, strange to say, is usually has no more idea what, why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses which are a satisfied part of the time. But in their hearts, they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. There is the obsession that someday, somehow someday they will beat the game, but they often suspect they are down for the count. Now there is the word obsession. Remember, an obsession of the mind is an idea that overcomes all ideas to the contrary. An obsession of the mind is an idea that is so strong it can make you believe something that is not true. The great obsession of every alcoholic is someday, somehow, we're going to find some kind of liquor that we can drink without getting drunk. Someday, somehow, we're going to find a group of people that we can drink with. Someday, somehow, we're going to find a place that it, and that idea is so strong, it makes us believe that it's okay for us to drink. We take a drink, we trigger the allergy, and we end up drunk. So the real problem centers in our mind telling us we can drink rather than in our body, which ensures that we can't. I've never heard anybody yet say, I'm going to go have two drinks and go to the jailhouse tonight. <laughs> we always say we're going to have two drinks and have fun. And we have the two drinks, and then we go to the jailhouse. So the real problem is right up here rather than down here. Page 24, first paragraph, squiggly writing. That's italic. The, great fa the fact is that, that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into consciousness with sufficient force 
the memory and suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago, we were without defense against the first drink. Can't remember the jailhouse. Can't remember the divorce court. Can't remember what alcohol had done to me. Can only remember what it has done for me. And that will drive me back to drinking. I always say I got a wonderful memory. It's just short. Just cannot remember those things that alcohol done to me. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. You know, if you put your hand on a hot stove and it burns you badly, chances are you will always remember that. Chances are you'll never go put your hand on a hot stove again to see if it'll burn you the second time. You know, I remember as a kid growing up back in the Depression years, and there's, there's a few of you in here old enough to remember that too. And back in the 1930s, we didn't have very much. We didn't have hot and cold running water. We didn't have forced air heat. Joe said his family was not so poor they had to live in a tent, but he said, by God, if we'd had the money, we'd have lived in a tent. That's about how bad it was. But I remember in those days, even though you didn't have anything, you were very poor people. Cleanliness was still next to godliness. And every Saturday night, everybody in the family had to take a bath. Now, whether you needed a bath or not is beside the point. You still had to take one. And one night in the middle of the winter, Mother had heated the bath water on the old heating stove in the living room, put it in a number three zinc wash tub sitting behind that stove. Now, every kid in the family takes a bath in the same water. I'm the baby of the family. By the time it got to me, the crud would be about an inch thick on it. Mother said, get in there and get yourself clean. I thought to myself, how in the hell did I get clean there? But I didn't dare say that to her. Didn't talk to your parents that way in the 1930s. I scraped the crud back. I got in the tub, began to wash myself, heating stove standing here red hot. Somehow I managed to lean over and stick my rear against that hot stove. <laughs> Burned the blister on my rear end about as big as my hand hurt me worse than anything had ever hurt me before. And do you know I've never had an obsession of the mind to stick my ass on a hot stove pencil? <laughs> I have never jerked my britches down, backed up to a stove, and said, burn me again. Now, alcohol has burned me over and over and over and over and over, just as bad as that stove ever burned me, and for some strange reason my mind cannot remember that. Left on my own resources, I start thinking about drinking, and after a while I think about only what it's going to do for me. That great sense of ease and comfort, that great exciting in-control feeling that comes from the first couple of drinks, and my mind keys in on that. I forget about the jailhouse, the hospitals and the divorce courts, and I don't see a thing in the world wrong with taking a drink. And I take a drink, and I trigger the allergy, and I end up drunk over and over and over again. Last paragraph, page 24. So now when this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid. And unless locked up, may die, go permanently insane. Now, if we've placed ourselves beyond human aid, then the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous will not bring about recovery, because the fellowship is made up of a group of human beings who are just as powerless over alcohol as I am. 
So there's got to be a solution to that condition that we just talked about. And page 25 gives it to us. There is a solution. Okay, guys. Here we go. I can't do that. I never could do that. <laughs> yeah. We're going to start getting well now. Better come on in. Let's go to page 25. Let's begin to look at the solution. We could see that the uh, fellowship gave us enough power to support us for a while. But we were told that fellowship alone is not sufficient. And then it explained why fellowship alone is not sufficient. So now on page 25, we'll start looking at the real solution to alcoholism. He said there is a solution. And almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings which the process requires for a successful consummation. But we saw that it really worked in others and had to come to believe in the hopelessness and fertility of life that we'd been living in. When therefore we were approached by whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up a simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. And we have found much of heaven had been rocketed into a fourth dimension of, of existence of which we had not even dreamed. The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we've had deep and effective spiritual experiences, which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. And you notice up there it says the great fact is just this and nothing less that we've had deep and effective spiritual experiences, and there's a little asterisk there referring us down at the bottom of the page. It says, fully explained on Appendix 2. And later on, we'll refer to it on page 27. It says, for further amplification, see Appendix 2. And on page 47, referring to the asterisk, it says, please see Appendix 2. <laughs> they want to make... Yeah. That's very important. Yeah, very important. They repeat it three times. And they're talking about spiritual experiences and spiritual awakenings. And in the first printing of the book, they didn't have this little asterisk in the, there, and it didn't have the reference to the spiritual experience in the back of the book. And a lot of people would write into that little office to Bill and say, Bill, what do you mean by spiritual experience and spiritual awakening? We're, not, we're doing the same things that you're doing, but we're not having the same experiences that you have. What do you mean by that? And, you know, and it was very important for me, looking back at it now that I know this, because I had this spiritual experience mixed up with a bunch of things that I learned when I was seven or eight years old. Because when I was seven or eight years old, I told myself, I said, Self, <laughs> if I ever get big enough they can't catch me, I'm not going anymore. To church, that is. And I got big enough they couldn't catch me, and I didn't go. So when I arrived at Alcoholics Anonymous, I had the spiritual knowledge of a seven or eight-year-old boy, which was practically none. And that that I did have was all mistaken and mixed, and mixed up in lots of emotionalism, things I didn't understand. The times that they would catch me, take me to that revival. They had a revival there quite often in my area, in the Southern Baptist, Southern Baptist, really Southern. <laughs> and uh, when I would get there and, and they would be preaching all day and singing songs and having dinner on the ground and prayer meetings all day long and church way into the night, bored the heck out of me. But one night my Aunt Much, and she's a big woman, Aunt Much, <laughs> the reason they called her that, 
But Aunt Mush kind of got in the spirit of this thing that night, and she began to jump up and down, and she began to talk in a strange language that I'd never heard of before, squealing and hollering, rolling around in the sawdust, scared the heck out of me. So when this book began to talk about spiritual experiences and spiritual awakenings, I thought that was what I was going to have to have. And I was dreading it, I tell you I was. But thank God for people like me who didn't know any better. They put this information in the back of the book talking about spiritual experiences and spiritual awakenings. And this is, these is used all throughout this book. And they want to make real sure that I understand what they mean by that. So let's go back to page 569 and see what they mean by the term spiritual awakening and spiritual experiences. So on page 569, the term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading, we all know that alcoholics don't do careful reading, shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Okay, the first paragraph, we see something. We see that the term may be spiritual experience, or it may be spiritual awakening, and in either case, it's going to be a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. Dr. Silkworth referred to this as a psychic change, a change in the way we think and the way we feel and our attitude. So we could see several terms, spiritual experience, spiritual awakening, personality change, or psychic change, all meaning the same thing. Spiritual experience happens suddenly, like it did with Bill and some of the people in the back of the stories in the first book. And then we have a spiritual awakening which develops slowly over a period of a long time. So yet it's true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Well, happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described, though it was not our intention to create such an impression. Many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they will develop slowly over a period of time. Now, Bill's was a sudden, spectacular change. Some of the others in the stories in the back of the book were sudden, spectacular changes. But what he's saying here is that most of us, it won't happen that way. Most of us will have the educational variety, and we will change as we learn and as we apply slowly over a period of time. Sooner or later, though, we awaken to the fact that we have changed also, and then we'll call it a spiritual awakening. So it really doesn't make any difference whether it's sudden and spectacular or whether it's a slow thing that involves over a period of time. In either case, it's going to be a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. Now, I can begin to think with this. I can live with this kind of idea. But when you start talking about what Aunt Much had in the Baptist church, I couldn't live with that idea at all because I was raised in the Southern Baptist church too. And my idea of a spiritual experience was an entirely different thing. Thank God for this appendix that let me know what it really is, a change in my personality. My personality is made up by the way I think, by the way I feel, my attitude and outlook upon life, people, places, and things in general. That's what determines my personality. I come here 
restless, irritable, and discontented, filled with shame, fear, guilt, and remorse. If I can change from that to peace of mind, serenity, and happiness, I've undergone one hell of a change in my personality. It's the educational variety of the type that we're having this weekend, right? We won't be the same after this weekend. None of us will. None of us will. No. See, quite often friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. But most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but they are indispensable. There is a principle which is bar against all information, which is proof against all argument, and which cannot fail to keep a man everlasting ignorance, and that principle is contempt for our investigation. See, I knew so many things that were not true when I arrived in Alcoholics Anonymous. Lifelong theories that were not true. I lived my life on, based upon those things, and they didn't work. And they were so true in my mind that it was almost impossible for me to learn something that was true. So I had to lay, a lie, lay aside a bunch of old ideas to be able to accept new, and I needed an open mind. In fact, I needed an open mind more today than I've ever needed an open mind because there's so much more to learn throughout life. Okay, now we pointed out the fact a while ago that Bill loves to teach by using examples of something we already know about to teach us something new. That's what he did when he used the great ocean liner. Another trend that Bill has, and I think it's very important for us to realize it, is like most writers, he did repeat himself quite often. But every time he repeated himself, he would normally find a different word that means the same thing. And if you see what he's doing, you can understand him. If you don't, though, you'll think he's talking about something different. There seems to be one key word in this whole thing dealing with spiritual experience, and that is the word change. Let's see how many times he said change on page 569 and how many different ways he had to say it. In the first paragraph, he talked about a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. In the second paragraph, he again mentioned personality changes. But then he said, in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. An upheaval is to change something entirely. In the third paragraph, first sentence, he said, sudden revolutionary changes. To revolutionize something is to change it entirely. Third paragraph, last sentence, he said, he needed an overwhelming God consciousness. To overwhelm something is to change it entirely. Third paragraph, last sentence, he said, vast change in feeling and outlook. Fourth paragraph, first sentence, he said, such transformations. To transform is to change. Fourth paragraph, about the middle of it, he said, profound alteration. To alter is to change. So the key thing here is to change from what we were when we came here. 
to something entirely different up here in our minds. To go from restless, irritable, discontented, selfish, self-centered human beings, to go from that to one who has peace of mind, serenity, and happiness, and the willingness to help others is an entire change in the way we think. That's a spiritual experience. That's a spiritual awakening. That's a personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. That's a psychic change. Now, I can buy into that. To go from what we were to something entirely different in the way we think. Religion has nothing to do with this at all. We make the change through spirituality. It seems that's the only real way that people change is through spirituality. They talked about change, and I told you when I got here, I had become everything I detested in the human being. And I didn't like who I, what I had become or who I was. So they talked about change, and I thought they meant for me to become something that I'm not. So I looked around the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I found me some heroes, some people that I wanted to be like. And we need those heroes in the beginning. I still need my heroes. Charlie was one of my heroes. So I set about to be exactly like Charlie. I didn't like me, so I wanted to be like Charlie. And I almost made it. Thank God I didn't. <laughs> one don't need one, Charlie. But I tried to emulate and be exactly like him because I didn't like me. And that's good. That's good. I needed that. So the type of change I, I think you're talking about today is to change from what I had become to that which God intended for me to be. Right. Just me. Just me. And that's a marvelous experience in Alcoholics Anonymous and in life just to become who you are and what God intended for you to be only. And there's only one of those. Thank God. Now let's go back to page 25. It said, if you're as serious an alcoholic as we were, we believe there's no middle-of-the-road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible, and we had passed into a region where there's no return to human aid. We had but two alternatives. One was to go into the bitter end, blotting out the conscience of our intolerable situation as best we could. That's step one, remaining powerless. And the other, to accept spiritual help. That's step two, to accept the need for the power greater than we are. So this we did because we were honestly wanted to and were willing to make the effort. Now we saw where step one, the physical allergy, the obsession of the mind, we saw where that came from, from Dr. Silkworth in New York City. Now, you would think that the idea of the spiritual experience would have come to us through religious people. Let's look on page 26 and let's see where this idea really did come from. Now, we're talking here about a certain American businessman. This is this fellow named Roland Hazard. He was the one that stepped in between Ebby and the judge. So a certain American businessman had ability, good sense, and high character. For years he had floundered from one sanitarium to another. He had consulted the best-known American psychiatrist. Then he had gone to Europe, placing himself in the care of a celebrated physician, the psychiatrist Dr. Jung, who prescribed for him. Though experience had made him skeptical, he finished his treatment with unusual confidence. He didn't go there for a 28-day treatment program. He was with Dr. Jung for a full year. Dr. Jung psychoanalyzed him one day a week for 52 weeks. His physical and mental condition were unusually good. Above all, he believed he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. Nevertheless, he was drunk at a short time. More baffling still, he could give himself no satisfactory explanation for his fall. 
So he returned to this doctor whom he admired, asking point-blank why he could not recover. He wished above all things to regain self-control. He seemed quite rational and well-balanced with respect to other problems, yet he had no control whatever over alcohol. Why was this? He begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth, and he got it. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless. He could never regain his position in society, and he would have to place himself under lock and key or hire a bodyguard if he expected to live long. That was a great physician's opinion. But this man still lives and is a free man. He does not need a bodyguard, nor is he confined. He can go anywhere on this earth where the other free men may go without disaster, provided he remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude. Now, some of our alcoholic readers may think they can do without spiritual help. Let us tell you the rest of our conversation our friend had with his doctor. The doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I've never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does on you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with a clang. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, these occurrences are phenomenal. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Change. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes for once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side. Change. And a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. Change. In fact, I've been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement within you. Change. With many individuals, the methods which are employed are successful, but I've never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. Asterisk, bottom of the page, for amplification, see Appendix 2. <laughs> Can you imagine this? This is the world's third most well-known psychiatrist at that time. It was Dr. Freud, Dr. Adler, and Dr. Jung. Roland goes to Dr. Jung and is treated for a year. He goes out and gets drunk and comes back. He begs the doctor to tell him the whole truth. Humility to say, Roland, I've done all I can do for you. With my knowledge of the mind and my skills, I just can't help you anymore. You're probably going to die from alcoholism. And he could have said, Roland, I think you're suffering from a bad Valium deficiency. Let me write you a prescription. You come back for another year. He was a good enough man not to do that. And Roland said, are there no exceptions to this? And this guy was great enough to go out of his field and say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Once in a while, I've seen people like you have a vital spiritual experience. He said, I don't understand it. It's phenomenal to me, but I have seen it happen. Now, they tell us that Roland tried to get to Freud first, and Freud wasn't taking any more patience. He tried to get to Adler, and Adler was too busy. Jung was the third choice. Now, Adler and Jung were both students of Freud, and Jung had fallen out with Adler and Jung on one thing only. Adler and Jung thought all answers would lie within the mind. I mean, Adler and Freud. Jung thought some people might be able to be helped through spirituality. Now, thank God that Roland didn't get to Freud or Adler. We'd be sitting around today psychoanalyzing ourselves 
rather than depending upon spirituality. And unfortunately, that's what we're doing in a lot of our AA meetings, trying to psychoanalyze rather than depend upon spirituality. And what blows my mind to think is this. We alcoholics who are so proud of our 12 steps, and rightfully we should be, I think we need to stop once in a while and remember where they came from. Step one came from a non-alcoholic neurologist in New York City named Dr. Silkworth. Step two came from a non-alcoholic psychiatrist on the other side of the world named Dr. Jung. The last ten steps came from a group of people called the Oxford Groupers who were non-alcoholic practicing first century Christianity to the best of their ability. Everything that you and I use for recovery came to us from non-alcoholics. I think we need to remember that. It might be good for our humility to do so, Joe. Is that odd or is that God? <laughs> you know, I think, I think about Dr. Silkworth. He, he knew what the problem was. He observed that through working with 50,000 of us alcoholics, and it became his opinion. But he didn't have a solution for it. Dr. Jung had a solution for alcoholism, the vital spiritual experience, but he didn't know what the problem was. The Oxford group had a, some tenants that we could work. They had the plan program of action, so to speak, but they weren't in pro involved in the problem or the solution, either one. And here's a wholesale milk that happened from that moment until this, if you will. He said, but you know, prior to this, he said the exceptions to your case had been occurring since early time. Here and there, just once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, these are a phenomenon. He went back and joined the Oxford group and, plan, and took the plan program of action of the tenants of the Oxford group, and he recovered. And he was able to help Ebby, and Ebby brought this to Bill. And Bill was over there getting all this other information, jailed in the mind of Bill Wilson, one person. But the miracle is this. Back in those days, it was just here and there, once in a great while. Today, we can look around these rooms at each other and say to each other, here and now, every time an alcoholic will apply these things to their life, they too can recover. And they call it Alcoholics Anonymous. A wholesale miracle has happened. I am not the miracle. The miracle is Alcoholics Anonymous, and I get to participate in it. I now go see Bill now as he finishes up with Chapter 2, probably sitting down and reviewing what he's told us up to this point, saying to himself, that in the doctor's opinion in my story, I was able to show them the problem. In chapter 2, I was able to show them the solution. Now let's look at a little picture for just a moment, illustrating the solution before we go any further. Joe, where is it? It's up there. It's up there. In that little picture we have up here on the screen, We've talking about what is the solution. And on the left-hand side of the picture, we see the fellowship which supports us, where the older members, through the sharing of their experience, strength, and hope with the newcomer, provides enough support for the newcomer to be able to stay sober for a period of time. And by the way, it's a two-way street. As we older members support the new member, then we draw strength from that too. Great strength in the fellowship. It'd be almost impossible to be in AA today for very long and not begin to believe there's some power greater than human power working within this thing. When you hear countless hundreds of people saying it's only by the grace of God or because of God as I understand it, 
For because of the power greater than I am, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink in X number of days, weeks, months, years, or whatever. You can hardly hear that over and over and over and not begin to believe there's some power working within this thing. The instant the newcomer begins to believe that, that opens the mind, and they become willing to investigate. And upon investigation, we find that simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. As we work and apply those steps in our lives, we undergo a personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism, and we find the power greater than human power. When that happens to us, we then have become older members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now we can go back to the left-hand side of the sheet, and we can help support the next newcomer, help them work their program so they can have a spiritual experience also. The book plainly states you cannot give something away that you haven't got. Now somewhere down the line, when they quit working the program out of the book, then in self-defense they started measuring success by how long have you been sober, rather than by the quality of that sobriety. In the beginning, everybody was expected to work the program, have the spiritual experience. If they didn't want to do that, they were told, you might as well leave here because we can't help you if you don't do that. So older membership was based on quality of sobriety rather than quantity of sobriety. Now today you see all kinds of people in AA. You see somebody that's been in here maybe six months. They got a good sponsor. They got immediately into the program. They've worked the steps. They've had a spiritual awakening. They're always laughing, cutting up, having fun always helping AA and doing what they can for other alcoholics. They are a delight to behold, and you just love to be around them. Only been sober six months. You've got others that's been in here six, eight, ten years. Treated it like a cafeteria. Took some, but left what they didn't want. Now, they're better than they used to be, but you never know what kind of shape they're going to be in when you run into them. One day they're up, the next day they're down. They're kind of like a yo-yo going back and forth. Then you see some people that's been in here 15, 16, 18, 20 years, never worked a step, damn proud of it. <laughs> and they're the ones that say, by God, if you want what we've got, then you're willing to go to any damn lakes to get it. Now, some of those guys feel so bad you'd like to buy them a drink. You know they would feel better with a drink, see. So we're not talking about quantity of sobriety here. We're talking about quality of sobriety. And only those that have had the spiritual experience can help another have a spiritual experience. You simply can't give away something you don't have. I see Bill running this all through his mind. And he probably says to himself, they're not going to like this idea of a spiritual experience any more than I did. You remember he had an aversion to these things. He and Abby argued about this for a long time. And I think Bill says, I need to tell them just exactly what's going to happen to them if they don't have this spiritual experience. And he writes another chapter, and he called it More About Alcoholism. And in this chapter, he talks about one thing and one thing only. He talks about the insanity of alcoholism. You know, step two says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. 
Well, if we've got to be restored to sanity, that indicates we must be insane. And many alcoholics are highly offended when you bring this up. They say, oh, don't tell me I'm insane. Yeah, I do some pretty crazy, stupid things when drinking. But when I'm sober, I'm much like normal people. Other alcoholics say, well, I don't have any trouble with this insanity because I remember the crazy, stupid things I did while drinking. In either case, they're referring to the stupid things we do while drunk. No, that's not insanity. The stupid things we do while drunk, that's caused by a mind that is filled with alcohol, which lowers the inhibitions. And if your mind is filled with something that lowers your inhibitions, look out. You're going to do some pretty crazy, stupid things, all right. That's why they give all that free booze downstairs. (laughs) (laughs) That's not insanity. That's caused by alcohol itself. In order for us to understand this, we finally had to go back to the dictionary again. And to look up the word sanity or the word sane. And it's defined in the dictionary as wholeness of mind or completeness of mind. If your mind is whole, if your mind is complete, that means you can see the truth about everything around you. You will normally make decisions then based on truth, and life turns out to be pretty good. An insane mind is one that is less than whole. A mind that is less than whole cannot always see the truth about everything around it. Sometimes makes a decision based upon a lie, and then life becomes pretty lousy. To be insane does not mean you're crazy. If you're crazy, that means you've lost more than half your marbles, and you've got to be locked up somewhere to protect you and society from you. That's craziness, but insanity is just less than whole. I think one of the best ways I know to illustrate it is let's let's take a pie, set it here in front of us. Let's cut that pie into ten pieces. You come along and I give you a piece of pie. My pie is now less than whole, but hell, I've still got 90% of it. Somebody else comes along and I give them a piece of pie. My pie is now more or less than whole, but I've still got 80% of it. Insanity does not mean you're all gone. It just means you're not quite all here. (laughs) Now, when it comes to alcohol, from time to time, it seems as though we're not quite all here because we can't always see the truth about alcohol. We make a decision based upon a lie, then we run into the truth and life becomes an absolute living hell. So let's look within the mind of we alcoholics. Just before we take the first drink, Stone cold sober, can we or can we not see the truth? If we can see the truth, we're sane. If we can't, we're insane. Now, Bill is going to show us this by a series of examples. He's going to give us the man of 30. He's going to look at Jim. He's going to look at the jaywalker. And he's going to look at Fred. And each time, we're going to look into the mind to see if we can or cannot see the truth about alcohol. Let's look at it in just a few minutes. This chapter is called More About Alcoholism. It could be called More Truth About Alcoholism. I've heard all my life, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And if you're not free, it's because you don't know the truth. And this chapter here is to give me more truth so I can base my life upon truth rather than upon things that are not true. He said most of us have been unwilling to admit that we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think that he's bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it's not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized 
by countless vain attempts to prove that we drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. Now we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we're like other people who presently may be has to be smashed. Now be careful. In these two paragraphs that Joe just read, he has used four different words that all mean the same thing. And if you catch him at it, you know what he's doing. If you don't, you'll think he's talking about something else. He said the idea that someday, somehow someday he will control and enjoy his drinking is a great obsession of every abnormal drinker. Now, we know an obsession is an idea that is so strong it can make you believe something that's true. It can make you believe a lie. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. We know what an illusionist is. An illusionist is a magician, and they can stand in front of you in a sleight of hand and a few props. They can make you believe something that's not true. So illusion also means to believe something that's not true or to believe a lie. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. Insanity is to believe something that's not true. The next paragraph, he said, the delusion that we are like other people are present and maybe has to be smashed. Delusion means the same thing. If you've deluded yourself, it means you've come to believe something that's not true. So you may see him using any one of four terms. Obsession, illusion, delusion, or insanity. All four mean exactly the same thing, to believe something that is not true or to believe a lie. Let's go over to page 32, second paragraph. Let's look at the lie the man of 30 believed. <clears throat> said a man of 30 was doing a great deal of speed drinking. He was very nervous in the mornings after these bouts and quieted himself with more liquor. He was ambitious to succeed in business, but saw that he would get nowhere if he drank at all. Once he started, he had no control whatever. Now, he made up his mind that until he had been successful in business and retired, he would not touch another drop. An exceptional man. He remained bone dry for 25 years and retired at the age of 55 after a successful and happy business career. Then he fell victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic has, that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. Out came his carpet slippers in a bottle. In two months, he was in a hospital, puzzled and humiliated. Now, he tried to regulate his drinking for a while, making several trips to the hospital meantime. Then, gathering all his forces, he attempted to stop altogether and found that he could not. Every means of solving his problem which money could buy was at his disposal. Every attempt failed. Though a robust man in retirement, he went to pieces quickly and was dead within four years. Now, this case contains a powerful lesson. Most of us have believed that if we remain sober for a long stretch, we could thereafter drink normally. But here is a man who at 55 years found we had just left off at, at 30. We have seen the truth demonstrated again and again. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we're in a short time as bad as ever. Now, if we're planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we'll be immune to alcohol. Now, we know the truth to be this. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. We've never seen one single case where one of us was able to go back to successful drinking. Now, to believe anything different than that is to believe something that is not true or to believe a lie. 
This guy believed that after 25 years of sobriety, he could now drink like normal people. Now, based upon that belief, he took a drink, triggered the allergy, couldn't stop. Four years later, he's dead. Now, is his real problem, though, the fact that he has a physical allergy to alcohol or a form of insanity that tells him it's okay to drink alcohol after 25 years of sobriety? The real problem is in our mind telling us we can drink rather than in our body that ensures that we can't drink. Let's go to page 34, second paragraph. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. We are assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he's already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. Many of us felt we had plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it, this utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. How then should we help our readers determine to their own satisfaction whether they are one of us? The experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful, but we think we can render an even greater service to alcoholic sufferers and perhaps to the medical fraternity. So we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. For obviously this is the crux of the problem. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree, which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Or what is he thinking? Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. Now we're going to look in old Jim's mind just before he gets drunk. And we're going to see whether he is sane or insane. Joe loves Jim. Yeah, I love old Jim. I identify with Jim. <clears throat> Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable World War record. He's a good salesman. Everybody likes him. Typical alcoholic, isn't he? Hmm? He's an intelligent man and normal so far as we can see, oh, except for a nervous disposition. Mm -hmm. Now, he did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated, he had to be committed. On leaving the, treatment, on leaving the asylum, <laughs> he came into contact with us. <clears throat> now, we told him what we knew of alcoholism. They told him about step one, the physical allergy, the obsession of the mind, the powerless condition. And the answer we had found. They told him about step two, the power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, he made a beginning. Step, a little later on, the book says step three is just the beginning. So apparently Jim took steps one, two, and three, and immediately things started to get better for him. His family was reassembled, and he began to work as a salesman for a business he'd lost through drinking. And all went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. The book's going to tell us the only way we enlarge on step three is four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and twelve, and Jim didn't do any of those. One, two, and three. To his consternation, he found himself drunk a half a dozen times in rapid succession. Now, on each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. Oh, these were good AA members. Jim got drunk six times in a row. Each time, they went over there and worked with him, carefully reviewing what had happened. You get drunk six times in a row today, they probably won't have anything to do with you. These were good, solid AA members. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in serious condition. Now, he knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. 
Moreover, he would lose his family from whom he had deep affection. Yet he got drunk again. And we asked him to tell us exactly what happened. They get a little tired of Jim now. They said, they said, my God, Jim, this is seven times in a row. Let's don't go through this anymore. You sit down here and you tell us exactly how this has happened. On page 36, we're going to see where Jim was sane, and then we're going to see where he went insane. Well, this is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. And we read this book for years before we saw this. I came to work on Tuesday morning. <laughs> Where was he all day Monday? You know? we God, are we're bad, bad about Monday. Bad about Monday. Now he said, I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for Concern I once owned. Now I don't think that's insanity. That's probably normal thinking. I think any of us that had to be a salesman for a concern we once owned would probably be a little irritated by that fact, too. That's normal, sane thinking. He said, I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. The boss probably said, say, Jim, by the way, where were you all day yesterday, anyhow? <laughs> nothing serious, just enough to irritate him. He's a little restless, and a, little a little irritable, and a little discontented. He said, then I decided to drive in the country and see one of my prospects for a car. What's more normal than if you're a car salesman? You want to get away from the shop for a while, drive out in the country, see somebody we already know that we're trying to sell a car to. That would be normal, sane thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. On the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. I just thought I'd get a sandwich. What's more normal than if you're hungry, to stop in a roadside place to get a sandwich? The fact that they got a bar there is beside the point. We have no intention of drinking. We're hungry, we're going to get a sandwich. Normal, sane thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. I also had the notion I might find a customer for a bar at this place, which was familiar, but I've been going to it for years. I'd eaten there many times during the months I was sober. We're not going in there to drink. We've eaten there many times during the months we're sober. We're going to go in there and get a sandwich and maybe sell a car while we're in there. Normal, sane thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. He said, I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. What's more normal than to sit down at a table, order a sandwich, and a glass of milk? Normal, sane thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. So I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. If you're hungry enough, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with two sandwiches and two glasses of milk. Unless you're a member of Overeaters Anonymous, you'd better look at it. But that would be normal, sane thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. Two sandwiches, two glasses of milk. Now comes the squiggly writing. <laughs> That's italic. He said, suddenly. Suddenly. That means right now. Suddenly. The thought crossed my mind that if I would put an ounce of whiskey in the milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. Now, this is absolute insanity, isn't it? For this guy to believe that he can take whiskey, mix it with milk, and take it on a full stomach, and it won't hurt him. Now, based on the insane idea, he makes a decision and takes some action. He said, I ordered whiskey and poured it into the milk. And I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart. <laughs> I felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. Now we've got it inside of ourselves. The physical allergy takes over. Now then we can't stop. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into the milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. Can you imagine how he's going to feel with whiskey and milk back and forth? <laughs> what a hangover he's going to have. Thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Here was a threat of commitment, the loss of family and position, to say nothing of that intense 
mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. Now, he had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in the favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? And if you were looking for a definition of insanity, that would be it right there. The lack of a, of a portion of the ability to think straight to be called anything else. Now, is Jim's real problem the fact that he has a physical allergy to alcohol? Because he has a form of insanity that tells him it's okay to drink alcohol mixed with milk on a full stomach. The real problem centers in the mind telling us we can drink rather than the body that ensures that we can't. Page 37, last paragraph. Our behavior is as absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink as that of an individual with a passion, say, for jaywalking. He gets a thrill out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. Now, I, I don't understand this guy at all. <laughs> but I can see him out here on the interstate waiting for a truck or a bus to come down through there, jumps out in front of it, spins around two or three times, sees how close it comes can come to hitting him without actually hitting him. For some reason, he gets a thrill out of it. Don't understand him, but I can see him doing it. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. People say, hey, Bill, you better quit doing that. You're going to get yourself hurt. Up to this point, you would label him as a foolish chap having queer ideas of fun. Luck then deserts him, and he's slightly injured several times in succession. He's getting a little older now. He can't move as fast. They begin to hit him once in a while. <laughs> Nothing serious. He just kind of bounces off of him. <laughs> you would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. But presently he's hit again, this time as a fractured skull. Now, he got hurt bad this time. Within a week after leaving the hospital, a fast-moving trolley car breaks his arm. He gets hurt bad again. Now, he sings their national anthem. He tells you he decided to stop jaywalking for good. He said, man, I'll never do that again as long as I live. But in a few weeks, he breaks both legs. On through the years, his conduct continues, accompanied by his continual promises to be careful or to keep off the streets altogether. Finally, he can no longer work. He's just so beat up now, he can't hold a job. His wife gets a divorce. She started supporting him and the kids and the hospital bills, and he's held up to ridicule. He tries every known means to get the jaywalking idea out of his head, not his body, his head. He shuts himself up in a treatment center, hoping to mend his ways. But the day he comes out, he races in front of a fire engine, which breaks his back. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? Now, you may think our illustration is too ridiculous, but is it? We who have been through the ringer have to admit, if we substituted alcoholism for jaywalking, the illustration would fit us exactly. However intelligent we may have been in other respects, where alcohol has been involved, we've been strangely insane. Strong language, but isn't it true? Oh, I think that's so appropriate today. You know, once again, because of education, many, many people are getting to us before they have to lose everything. Occasionally, you see somebody come in here that's still married. Once in a while, they come in and they've got a job. Believe it or not, I saw one come in about a month ago, and he still had an automobile. And we start talking to those people about insanity. They say, man, don't tell me I'm crazy. I haven't lost anything. I've got my job. I've got my blah, blah. No, uh -uh. 
We're not talking about that at all. We're talking about one thing and one thing only. Can we or can we not see the truth about alcohol? If we can, we're sane. If we can't, we're insane. Now, the low-bottom drunk like Jim, probably easier for him to see his insanity because he lost everything that he had, period. A high-bottom drunk who hasn't lost a lot of stuff, sometimes it's a little more difficult for them to see it. But I'll tell you, whether you're low-bottom or high-bottom, if you get drunk, you're going to get drunk the same way, believing something that is not true. Let's go to page whatever the next one is, 39. 39. My, my old page is just tore up. I can't read it anymore. And we're going to look at a guy named Fred. Now, Fred is the opposite of Jim. Fred is high bottom. Fred never lost anything. Jim didn't feel too good the day he got drunk. Fred is on top of the world the day he gets drunk. Yet he got drunk the same way he believed a lie. Let's look at his, Fred's life. Page 39 said, Fred is a partner in a well-known accounting firm. His income is good. He has a fine home. He's happily married and father of promising children of college age. Now, he has so attractive a personality that he makes friends with everyone. If ever there was a successful businessman, it's Fred. Now, to all appearance, he's a stable, well-balanced individual, yet he's alcoholic. Now, we first saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where he'd gone to recover from a bad case of the jitters. It was his first experience of this kind, and he was much ashamed of it. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, he told himself he came to the hospital to rest his nerves. We see lots of nerve resters in AA today, just like old Fred is. The doctor intimated strongly that he might be worse than he realized. For a few days, he was depressed about his condition. Now, he made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could do so in spite of his character and standing. Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic. He would not take step one much less accept a spiritual remedy for his problem. If you can't take one, you can't take two. We told him what we knew of alcoholism. They told him about step one and step two. And he was interested and could see that he had some of the symptoms. He said, I'm a little bit alcoholic. Borderline case. Now, he was a long way from admitting he could do nothing about himself. Now, he was positive that his humiliating experience, plus the knowledge he had acquired, would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. Now, we heard no more of Fred for a while. One day we were told that he was back in the hospital. This time he was quite shaky. He soon indicated he was anxious to see us. The story he told us is most instructive, for here was a chap absolutely convinced he had to start drinking, who had no excuse for drinking, who exhibited splendid judgment and determination in all his other concerns, yet was flat on his back nevertheless. Well, let him tell you about it. He said, I was much impressed with what you fellows said about alcoholism, and I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to drink again. And I rather appreciate your ideas about that subtle insanity which precedes the first drink. But I was confident it could not happen to me after what I'd learned. I reasoned I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows, that I've been usually successful in licking my other personal problems, and that I would therefore be successful where you men fail. I felt I had every right to be self-confident. It would be only a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. Now, this frame of mind, I went about my business, and for a time all was well. I had no trouble refusing drinks and began to wonder if I had not been making too hard a work of a simple matter. We think Fred began to get drunk right here. He began to say, now, nah, just staying sober is easy, nothing to this. Yeah. One day I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I'd been out of town during this particular dry spell, so there's nothing new about that. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased and knew my partners would be too, 
It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. Everything's on top of the world for old Fred. He's doing great, making lots of money, family happy, business associates happy. Everything's good in Fred's life. He said, I went to the hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails and go back to the hospital. <laughs> now that's the truth, isn't it? No way could he drink on the truth. His mind said it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. Now based on the insane idea, he makes a decision, takes some action. I ordered a cocktail in my meal, then I ordered another cocktail. And we got it inside ourselves now. The allergy takes over. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me a highball would be fine before going to bed, so I stepped into the bar and had one. I remember having several more that night and plenty next morning. I have a shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York and of finding a friendly taxicab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me about for several days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital with unbearable mental and physical suffering. As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. I had commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. Now is Fred's real problem the fact that he has a physical allergy to alcohol? Or that he has a form of insanity that tells him it's okay to have a couple of cocktails with dinner? The real problem centers in the mind, telling us we can drink rather than the body that ensures we can't. Page 43, last paragraph. You know, Bill had the, the idea that self-knowledge would fix it. Roland had the idea that self-knowledge would fix it. Fred had the idea that self-knowledge would fix it. Bill is trying to show us through here. They all have the obsession to the mind. And he's trying to show us through the, the illustrations of Man of 30, Jim, Jay Walker, and Fred to tell us one thing. And the last paragraph says, once more, so he just went through all this to, to say once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. Except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power, and that is the solution. So you can't heal a sick mind with a sick mind. Self-knowledge won't get it. The more we try to think our way out of it, the deeper into it we get. We must come from a higher power. Our defense must come from a higher power. And you notice he didn't say the practicing alcoholic or the drinking alcoholic. He just said the alcoholic. Now, what that means to me today is that I have no effective mental defense against the first drink. Left on my own resources, invariably I'm going to go right back to drinking again without the aid of a power greater than human power. Now, if you're the kind of alcoholic that I am, and if you were raised in the church setting that I was raised in, by the end of chapter 3, you are now faced with one hell of a dilemma. Because he's convinced me in chapter 3, without the aid of a power greater than I am, I'm going back to drinking. But I also felt that even though that was true, it would be 
wouldn't be possible for me to get the aid of a power greater than I am. Because you see, like Joe, I was raised in a good old Southern Baptist church. Now, I've got nothing against a good old Southern Baptist church. It's a great church. But when I was a kid growing up, I'm, I'm sure that from time to time they talked about a kind and a loving God. But if they did, the message never got to the pew I sat in. Because all I ever remember hearing about God when I was growing up in church was hellfire and, brim, and brimstone and going to hell for lying and cheating and stealing and drinking whiskey and committing adultery. By the time I got to AA, I'd been doing that for about 20-some-odd years. And I know that God had already told St. Peter, when that little four-eyed sucker gets up here, send them downstairs, we'll not need his kind. And I knew that if God had anything to do with me, it wouldn't be anything good. It would certainly be something bad. I remember so clearly when I separated from God. In that Baptist church I grew up in, they gave me the rules. They said, if you do this, this, and this, you'll be okay. If you do that, that, and that, you're going to hell just sure as anything. Now, I didn't have any trouble with their rules at all until I got to be about 12 or 13 years old. And one day it seemed to me that the preacher looked me straight in the eye and he said, Son, to think about doing it is just as bad as doing it. And I said, Oh, shit. I've had it now because I've been thinking about doing it for a long time. In fact, I've been thinking about doing it long enough I was starting to get brain damage from it. And I said, if you're going to hell for thinking about it, then you might as well just go ahead and do it. And I did. And I didn't go to hell immediately. And I said, that sucker has been lying to me all along. I said, he and my parents and my teachers have formed together in a conspiracy to keep me from having any fun. And I said, from this day on, I do not intend to pay any attention to what they have to say. I don't have any intention of following God's rules, their rules, or anybody else's rules. From this day on, I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to do it whenever I want to, and if they don't like it, to hell with them. Now, when I got to AA, I had that attitude of a 12-year-old boy who had defied God, his parents, and his teachers. And I first walked into AA, I was 38 years old, with a spiritual knowledge of God of that 12-year-old boy. No wonder we have trouble with this God thing when we get to AA. Anybody else ever have those kind of feelings about God and people? See? And I think Bill recognized that. And I think he said sooner or later, I'm going to have to ask these people to make a decision about God. And I think he said in his mind that they're not going to be able to make that decision based upon old ideas. And that's what I had when I got here, old ideas. And I think he said, I believe I, I need to give them some new information about God. Where they might be able to discard some old ideas, pick up some new ideas, and then they'll be able to make a decision about this God thing. And he wrote another chapter called We Agnostics. 
which I think is one of the greatest pieces of spiritual information I've ever read in my life. As I read that and studied that, I could see where some of my old ideas, old prejudices about God and religion were wrong. And when I could see where they were wrong, then I could discard them, and then I could accept some new ideas about God, and then I could make a decision. But based on hellfire and brimstone, based on the God of justice, no way could I have ever made the decision about God. Thank God for chapter 4. Let's look at just a little bit of it just before we go to lunch. You know, Dr. Young told Roland that ideas, emotions, and attitudes. That's what we're going to be looking at now. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which are the guiding force of the lives of these people, are suddenly cast to one side. And certainly the ideas, emotions, and attitudes that I had toward God were that of a seven or eight-year-old boy. I couldn't accept it then. I couldn't accept it later. I couldn't accept it when I got here. And I can't accept it today. Because I need new ideas and emotions and attitudes about this. New information is what I'm trying to say. This chapter, we agnostic. Just the word agnostic means something to me. Gnostic means knowledge. You put the ag in front of it, it means without. Those are us who are without knowledge. And that was me. And the knowledge that I did have was not good. And Bill had the same experiences that we did. When Nebby when presented him with a solution, he was aghast at that solution. Some of us are aghast at that solution also. And Bill said that whenever they talked to, to me uh, of a God person to me, he said my mind became irritated and snapped shut against such theories. And certainly that's the way that I did. Later on in the book it says to us that when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. The spiritual malady. The understanding of God of my understanding. When that is straightened out, we're straightened out mentally and physically. And this chapter here, we agnostic, is an attempt to do that. And as Father Bill Wilson, some of you know Father Bill, said to us many, many times, and I love it, he said that this chapter is not put here to teach me that there's any particular type of religion or type of God. He said this chapter is simply put here so that I might read and question and wonder and get some ideas, emotions, and attitudes, new ones, and open up my mind to a point that God might prove to me there's a God. Now, with that understanding of this chapter, it means more sense, makes more sense to me and becomes extremely valuable in my life. In the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism. We hope we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. If when you honestly want to, you can find that you cannot quit entirely. Because of the obsession. Or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take. Because of the allergy. You are probably alcoholic. God, isn't that simple? Isn't that simple? You see how people like to expand on things? They took the two questions out of the big book, and some years later they made a little pamphlet that had ten questions in it. And that wasn't enough. They made another one that had twenty questions in it. Hell, I think we're up to forty-four today, aren't we? Thank God Bill or Abby didn't have the forty-four questions with him when he walked into Bill's kitchen. He just said, Bill, has alcohol been bothering your reputation? <laughs> Hadn't had a reputation in years. Then he would have said, Bill, has alcohol been interfering with your sex life? Is anything like I was, he hadn't had any of that in a long time either. There's a statement in the 44 question that says, do you drink alone? Well, think about it. If I'm buying yes, and if you're buying no. <laughs> <laughs> We had an old friend that used to live in Tyler, Texas. His name was Wino Joe. 
I've always felt sorry for everybody in AA that didn't get to meet Wino Joe. He was a real character. He's dead now. But Wino Joe had made up his own list to ask yourself to see if you're alcoholic. And the first question on his list was, has the roof of your mouth ever been sunburned? Wow, thank you. <laughs> he said, if it has, you're probably alcoholic. <laughs> I think the second question was, have you ever been arrested for drunk driving from the back seat of somebody else's car? <laughs> the third one I loved was, have you ever been arrested for public drunk while in jail? <laughs> he had a real list of them. We only need these two. I use them all the time. People come to me today, they say, Charlie, you think I might be alcoholic? I say, I have no idea. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Have you been able to quit drinking entirely, left on your own resources? If they're a real alcoholic, they got to say no.